Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you'll hear Peter Lightheart's talk, Death and Resurrection of David, Typology and Structure of First and Second Kings, from our audio collection titled Type and Anti-Type. If you enjoy the talk, make sure to visit the Canon Press store and check out other books from Dr. Lightheart on the Bible, such as his Old Testament survey, A House for My Name, or his commentary on 1st and 2nd Samuel, titled A Son to Me. Make additional points about uh, hermeneutics in general, and here I want to develop the point that I've alluded to a couple of times that uh, interpretation always involves bringing things to a text from outside and not merely bringing things out from the text that are there. Uh, and good interpretation uh, depends on knowing what to bring in from the outside. Um, the second thing I want to do is, uh, as an illustration of that is apply this to a discussion of First and Second Kings. We'll be looking at a couple of passages of First uh, Kings in particular and a couple of brief passages in Second Kings. And that will lead into a discussion of the structure of the book as a whole. And uh, in this uh, discussion, I'm making two subordinate points about, uh, about the book of Kings and also two uh, additional points illustrating uh, principles of interpretation in general. The first is that uh, uh, we, when we're thinking typologically, we have to think not only in terms of how Old Testament events foreshadow New Testament events, but we also have to be thinking in terms of how uh, earlier events in the Old Testament foreshadow later events in the Old Testament. There's internal typologies going on within the Old Testament. Uh, this is uh, partly a matter of God providentially patterning history, so there's these recurring motifs and recurring events. Uh, similar events recur again and again. It's partly a matter of uh, the human writers guided by the Spirit who are writing later history against the background and uh, in the pattern of earlier history. I pointed out yesterday uh, that uh, the Abraham narrative, uh, it looks like a preview, a foreshadowing of the whole history of Israel. Certainly the uh, exodus into Egypt in, exodus, in Genesis 12 is a foreshadowing of the future exodus of the whole people of God. So you have that kind of internal typology uh, within uh, Genesis and Exodus. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament more broadly, uh, David is, David's life is definitely patterned off the life of Jacob, as I point out in my uh, commentary on Samuel. Solomon is not only a type of Christ, but Solomon is a new Adam, as I pointed out yesterday. So there's a typologies going back and forth. Solomon is an anti-type as well as a type of something in the future. David is the same. And so you've got these multiple typologies going back and forth. So that's, uh, uh, that's uh, one point, general point I want to make from the study of kings that we'll do. The other point has to do with the, the way the typology works, not just with individuals or institutions of the Old Testament foreshadowing later uh, New Testament events and institutions and, and particularly foreshadowing Christ, but uh, the whole structures and storylines of the Old Testament are foreshadowing what's going to happen in Christ. Uh, and I would put it this way, uh, in Kings, even if there were no individuals who were types of Christ in Kings, which I believe that there are, even then the entire story of the book of Kings would be a foreshadowing of the uh, the death and the glory of the of the Christ. That's I think that's the theme of uh, that's the theme of Kings. And we look at the structure of it as a whole. Uh, we see the Davidic dynasty dying and rising again at frequent intervals. So those are the various things I want to do. Uh, talk about hermeneutics in general first, and then look into uh, first first second Kings as a uh, as an illustration of some of the points. But I want to start by uh, talking about uh, jokes. Um, uh, this is uh, to illustrate the hermeneutical point I want to make. Um, I'm going to take a, a couple of sets of jokes. One is a joke that my kids brought to me from Reader's Digest some time ago, and uh, it's always it's always a bad idea to analyze jokes, what makes them funny. But I don't care if these are funny, and uh, since I, I'm not trying to entertain you, I'm trying to edify you. So whether these are funny or not, I think it still makes my point. Maybe it may even make the point better if uh, you don't think they're funny. The first is a the first is one from the Reader's Digest that my kids brought to me, and they said, "What's this mean?" And it goes like this: A priest, a nun, a rabbi, and a doctor and a lawyer walk into a bar. The bartender looks at them and says, "What is this a joke?" 
That's it. Okay. My kids didn't understand why that was funny at all. What, what's that doing in the What's that doing in the joke section of the Reader's Digest? Okay. I I thought it was amusing, but the the question I want to raise is what made that funny. Uh, second, um, the second is a series of things that. Uh, are taken from the uh, the film Shrek. Uh, I tell my tell my theology students that Shrek is a goldmine of hermeneutical insight, uh, regardless of the the virtues of Shrek or the lack of virtue of Shrek. Otherwise, I, I learned a lot about interpreting texts from watching the film Shrek and reflecting on it. Um, there's a uh, there's one scene, for example, there's a evil Lord Farquaad is uh, is torturing uh, the uh, uh, the gingerbread man. Uh, and they go through a little dialogue. Uh, uh, Lord Farquhar, or the uh, uh, Lord Farquhar says, "Do you know the Muffin Man?" Or I don't know who's saying what, but do you know the Muffin Man? The answer is the Muffin Man. Shrek says that. Okay, thanks. The Muffin Man, the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane. And they go back and forth. They're doing this little fairy tale. I found that amusing. And then, of course, the 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 torture has to do with pulling off pieces of the uh, of the gingerbread man, and then his his gumdrop buttons are. He needs to protect. There's another scene where the um, where the Lord Farquhar's soldiers are gathering up all the fairy tale creatures from the woods and bringing them into, uh, capturing them and bringing them in uh, to Lord Farquhar. And uh, one of them is carrying a puppet, and uh, he's, he says, uh, "I found a fairy tale creature. This is this is a puppet." He says, "No, I'm a real boy," and his nose starts growing. Um, there's a uh, there's a scene where Shrek goes in to rescue the Princess Fiona. Uh, she's been locked in a tower. She wakes up expecting a kiss. She uh, speaks in this kind of archaic English. She's expecting a great rescue scene. And uh, she finds out at a certain point that he hasn't killed the dragon yet. She says, what? You haven't killed the dragon yet? And he says, it's on my to-do list. <laughs> I'll get around to it. Um, there's a, uh, this, this is something that I didn't, I didn't catch the significance of. And this is a good illustration of the point I want to make. Uh, at the end of the film, uh, when they're having the wedding scene, uh, there's a uh, Shrek kisses uh, the, the Princess Fiona, who's turned into an ogre. I hate to give the, the story away to everybody who hasn't seen it. But, uh, she's actually an ogre by day, princess by night. I think that's the way it works. And uh, other way around, sorry. And uh, he kisses her, and uh, they, she goes spinning up in the air. Uh, there's sparks flying off her, and she comes down, and she's still an ogress, which I didn't realize uh, until my kids pointed out to me that that's taken directly from the uh, from Beauty and the Beast, uh, where and you do have the same kind of scene, except the result is different. Uh, whoever goes spinning up, I guess it's the beast, comes down as a prince. It's not what happens to the Princess Fiona. She goes spinning up, and you expect something to happen, and she comes down, and she's still who she was. She's still the ogress. Now, all of those are illustrating the point uh, that in order to... Th those, are, uh, those are intended to be jokes. The Reader's Digest joke is intended to be a joke. Uh, the author's intention is to make, uh, make the reader amused by what he's saying. And if you don't get the joke, you don't get the meaning in, in, of, the, of the statement in any sense. If we define meaning narrowly as author's intention, which I suggested is not a full account of meaning, but if, even if we define it narrowly as the author's intention, uh, you don't get the author's intention if you don't get the humor of the joke. But the humor of the joke is not in the joke. Okay? If you just look at the words and the sentences that are inside the text itself, it's not funny. And anybody who doesn't have some some idea of, the, of a tradition of humor that involves people going into a bar, like religious personages and lawyers going into bars, and uh, then the, the joke makes no sense. You have to bring a certain information uh, out from outside the text and know what information to bring in order to make sense of the text. And, and again, the author intends you to do that. The author is driving you from the text that he's writing elsewhere in order to understand the text that he's writing. The same thing is true for all of the, virtually all of the jokes in Shrek. There's some jokes that depend on internal uh, things that are just internal to the film, but most of the jokes in Shrek depend on you knowing something that's not in the film. If you don't know fairy tales and don't know nursery rhymes, then the whole, the whole torture scene just seems, it's pretty absurd anyway, but it just seems, <laughs> it just seems absolutely absurd. It's just, there's nothing funny about it. It's just, it's just bizarre, irrelevant dialogue. Um, but it, it takes on a certain humor when you, when, you, when you know it's a nursery rhyme that they're playing off of. 
or pop culture. I mean, there's there's a fight scenes, of course, in Shrek where you have the, the freeze camera and then the, the, the camera in an animated film kind of moves around. It's a Matrix scene when uh, they're fighting in the woods there. Hey, if you don't know the Matrix, if you've never seen the Matrix, then you just wonder, you know, that's, that's an odd thing to do in the cartoon because <laughs> you don't actually have a camera in the cartoon, so what's, <laughs> so what's going on there? Or the the uh, the Beauty and the Beast thing at the end. If you don't if you don't recognize that's in a, that's a Beauty and the Beast uh, illusion in the film, then you you get you miss some of the point of it. It's still that that scene is still kind of humorous by itself because even without the Beauty and the Beast thing, you expect something to happen after this great magical scene. Uh, you expect her to come down to be the princess, but of course she's not. Which, uh, to my mind, was the best part of the film that she didn't turn into a princess. Um, so, uh, and I, my uh, my point is that I think that's uh, that's just absolutely essential to any kind of reading. Uh, we're always doing that. There's no text ever. You can't write a text that contains all the information that you need to interpret the text. Uh, in a very basic level, the writer of a text is assuming a certain degree of knowledge of the language that he's writing in. He doesn't include definitions of every single word. Uh, in the text, so he's assuming at least the knowledge of the language, and especially in a literary text or a film, some kind of creative writing, uh, the writer expects you to bring in knowledge of things outside the text in order to interpret the text properly. This uh, this kind of what technically called in intertextuality is a feature of a great deal of Western literature. Uh, West, reading uh, reading the classics of Western literature depends on knowing the other classics. Okay. Uh, you can't read Virgil with any kind of depth unless you have some knowledge of the Homeric epics. Uh, you can read you can read the Aeneid and get the basic storyline, and you could summarize the story, but you don't really know what Virgil is doing. You don't know what Virgil intends you to understand unless you are bringing something in from outside the Aeneid. Uh, the Aeneid is set up so that it's a uh, it's basically a, an Odyssey story in the first half of the epic, followed by an Iliad story in the second half of the epic. Uh, and uh, much of what, uh, th and that structure is uh, is filled out in some some detail. The, uh, for example, the uh, uh, halfway through the Odyssey, uh, you have Odysseus telling the story of his adventures. Halfway through the Odyssean part of the Aeneid, you have Aeneid telling the story of his adventures to, uh, uh, in a foreign land. He's he's at the he's in Carthage. He's stopped by the. Uh, by a, a storm and uh, is uh, telling his the story of his adventures to Dido, Queen of Carthage. Uh, so the, it's not just that you have general references to the Odyssey. The actual the structure of the Odyssean part of the Aeneid is structured like the Odyssey, uh, and most of the events of that part of the Aeneid have some kind of allusion back to the Odyssey. And you can again you can get the basic storyline, but you don't see the depth of what's going on, or some of the ironies of what's going on. Uh, until you read it against the background of another text, and Virgil definitely wants you to do that. Virgil was Virgil basically knew the seems to have known the Homeric epics uh, virtually by heart. There are passages of the Aeneid that, uh, uh, to, to our way of thinking, look a lot like plagiarism. There's a scene uh, with uh, uh, when, for example, uh, this this is a, a good particular illustration of what I'm talking about. There's a scene at the beginning of the Aeneid uh, where Aeneas makes landfall at Carthage. And there's a description of a little bay that he comes into with his, uh, with his remaining ship. Uh, and there's a description of nymphs at the bay. And uh, there's, a, there's a fairly elaborate description, which is uh, in, in some phrases and, and uh, lines is almost word for word a Latin translation of the uh, certain part of the Odyssey. But in the Odyssey, uh, the scene is the, uh, Odysseus's landfall at Ithaca. Ithaca is Odysseus's hometown, home island. It's his kingdom. Odysseus makes landfall, and he's coming into this cove uh, where there's there's no there's no wind. You don't need an anchor. Those kind of things are there. There's nymphs in the caves, and he knows when he gets there that he's home. You have the same scene shown in the Aeneid, with Aeneid make, making landfall in Carthage, but it's being used ironically by Virgil because Aeneas thinks he's arrived at home, but he's not. It's a false home. Uh, it's a false homecoming, which is a, a, a continual theme through the first half of the Aeneid. That's, a, that's a, one particular example, and there's just hundreds of them in the Aeneid. Uh, virtually, uh, uh, virtually every ma major episode in the Aeneid, you could find some analogy in uh, Homeric epics. And if you miss that, you're missing part of the author's intention. Okay? But you have to bring something in from outside the text. Uh, 
uh, parodies depend a lot on this, uh, this uh, on your knowledge of something from outside the text itself. You just read Don Quixote, for example, as a straight up story. It's, it still has its humor, uh, and it still has its, uh, uh, still has its, uh, uh, it still has some of its qualities. Uh, but reading it against the background of chivalric romance uh, deepens your understanding of what's going on. Or Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. Uh, Northanger Abbey is a parody of a kind of Gothic romance story. Uh, and uh, it's clear that Austen intends it to be taken as a parody. Uh, she gives you enough clues uh, by the, the, the books that the characters read, uh, by references, explicit references to what the, how the characters should be acting, were they in a Gothic novel. Uh, and she tells you what, pe what the characters expect because they think they are in a Gothic novel. But she, as the author, makes it clear that she's not writing a Gothic novel. She's writing a parody of a Gothic romance. Um, but the, your understand, the understanding of Northanger Abbey, it works as a story by itself, but your understanding of what Austen is up to in Northanger Abbey depends on your having uh, something from outside. Uh, just a couple, those are just a couple of examples of uh, how this works in Western literature, and it's just, this is just the way people write. Uh, you can, you know, a, lot, a good uh, significant amount of writing, you know, kind of technical, functional kind of writing, writing letters and so forth, doesn't, may not have this quality. Even there, though, you have to bring in things from the outside in order to understand what's going on because no text gives you all the information you need to interpret the text. And the trick is to know what information uh, that you should bring into play in interpreting a particular text. So from, from, this, uh, from these kinds of considerations, I draw a few conclusions about interpretation in general. Uh, first is that uh, um, uh, I think there's a, 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 there's a lot of analogies between good interpretation, not just biblical interpretation, but good interpretation, and having a good sense of humor. Okay. Uh, and there's, if there's analogies, if there are genuine analogies there, then uh, it's uh, obviously it's not something that you can reduce to a, a scientific kind of operation. You can't, uh, somebody who uh, develops a sense of humor by learning a set of rules of humor is just not going about things properly. Having a good sense of humor uh, ha it is, is a matter of knowing uh, knowing what to bring into play uh, in order to uh, see the humor in a particular joke. Okay, uh, you can't you can't uh, in, you can't interpret a text uh, by a set of rules any more than you can interpret humor by a set of rules. Uh, another uh, a second point, as I've already emphasized, is that you can't uh, reduce the interpretation of any one text to unpacking what's put in. You do that obviously. You you unpack what's put in, but what's in the text is going to invite you and encourage you and in fact force you to go elsewhere uh, to interpret the text. As, as you're unpacking what's in the text, you have to go elsewhere to understand the meaning of it. Um, uh, in a, a more particular uh, point about biblical interpretation, that is that the context, uh, the, the storehouse of information that you need to bring to bear on any particular passage is the Bible as a whole. Okay? Uh, and when you're telling jokes, it may be all kinds of things. When you, the, the joke from the Reader's Digest depends on your knowing something about a certain tradition of joke telling. That's the storehouse of information that you need in order to get the joke. Uh, if you're watching Shrek, you have to have know something about fairy tales and pop culture, other films and so forth. That's the storehouse of information that you have to bring to bear. Uh, for scripture, it's scripture. Okay? You want to bring other scriptures to bear on a particular passage of scripture. And the trick is, of course, to uh, and the the developing good interpretive habits has to do with the develop, uh, developing skill in knowing which scriptures bear on which other scriptures. In, in some sense, they're all related to each other, but some are more strongly related to, uh, than others. Uh, and this is partly a matter of, uh, of learning how to recognize clues. Uh, the text will give you clues to, sometimes with an explicit reference, uh, sometimes with an explicit quotation, as in Matthew's Gospel, uh, sometimes with a, a more implicit kind of allusion or reference or echo, as Richard Hayes calls it, back to an early portion of scripture, uh, there are clues in the text that will lead you into, uh, lead you to other passages, the other passages that are key for interpreting a particular passage. Uh, but there, the, the, basic, uh, the basic approach here, or the basic method, is simply, as, as Doug Wilson emphasized in his first talk, simple immersion in scripture. Uh, and the more you're immersed in scripture, the more you know about scripture, the more the greater your storehouse of different texts to bring to bear on any one particular text. Um, the kinds of tools that we use uh, for Bible study are shortcuts to that. 
Okay, we use a concordance because we don't, we can't bring up in our own mind, or we use a computer, because we can't bring up in our own mind all the passages, all the passages that um, that uh, speak of uh, the Garden of Eden. Okay, uh, those don't, we don't have those in our heads. But if we had them in our heads, every time we see a even a passing allusion to the Garden of Eden, we'd have all these texts coming to bear. That's how, that's how the monks interpreted Scripture. That's how Augustine interpreted Scripture. We didn't have concordances. They just knew the Scripture so thoroughly that any, any kind of uh, any small faint echo of an earlier Scripture would remind them of a whole host of other Scriptures. Uh, that's that. If there's a method to doing typological interpretation or just biblical interpretation in general, it's just that. It's just knowing the rest, knowing the whole Bible, and knowing it thoroughly and studying it over a lifetime. Uh, um, I want to apply the, some of these thoughts uh, to a particular uh, passage in uh, a couple of particular passages in Kings, uh, and in this case, I think the second half of the lecture actually does fit neatly with the first half of the lecture. Uh, won't have to force them together, and I can actually show that there are connections. Um, now, to set this up, I want uh, the uh, the story of Kings is obviously the story of. Uh, of Israel's monarchy leading to the exile. It ends with Israel still in exile. Uh, one way that it's commonly described is that Kings is, Kings is answering the question of why we are in exile. Chronicles is answering the question of what we do now that we're out of exile. Uh, but in, in Kings ends with Israel still in exile. Judah still in exile. Uh, Chronicles ends with the decree of Cyrus, which sends the people back from exile. And Chronicles emphasizes a great deal more than Kings does the building of the temple, the organization, the priesthood, and all the kind of thing, uh, because it's, the chronicler is writing to people who are back in the land and who are ready to rebuild and ready to restart everything. Because Cyrus's Cyrus's decree has already happened. Uh, the the uh, 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 consensus interpretation of Kings is that Kings was written during the exile. Certainly, the book is written um, uh, in a way that it leads up to the exile and not beyond. Although, as I'll suggest, the end of the book gives us hope for restoration uh, of the Davidic dynasty and restoration to the land. It's not, the decree of Cyrus is not included. So on, if you read it, uh, read the book of Kings on the surface, and by Kings I mean First and Second Kings. It's, it's a single book. Um, if you read the book of Kings on the surface, it's a story of a disaster that happens to the people of God. You have this great golden age with Solomon. Uh, you have a fall during Solomon's reign, which leads to the division of the kingdom, and then just uh, uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel immediately goes into uh, severe idolatry, even more severe idolatry a few generations later, another dynasty later, a couple dynasties later. Uh, and then Judah f- uh, follows suit and ends up, uh, northern kingdom ends up uh, being conquered by Assyria, the southern kingdom by Babylon. So the story looks like a story of, mainly a story of disaster, a story of the death of the monarchy. Uh, and it ends with, uh, with I say, uh, as I said, Israel still in exile. Um, uh, and I think that that surface level of the story is an important part of it. But uh, if we look at other other aspects of the story and the other aspects of the structure of Kings, I think other uh, other things will come out. And what we get from Kings is instead a story that uh, presents the gospel to us in a in Old Covenant form. And I want to begin by looking at um, the uh, story, the the account of the reign of Omri in First Kings 16. Just to set some background, Omri, as you, as you may know, is one of the most pro- most prominent kings of the northern kingdom. Uh, he established uh, the first uh, dynasty in uh, in the history of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam really didn't have a dynasty. Uh, the following uh, was it Baasha didn't really have a dynasty. But uh, uh, Omri establishes a dynasty that goes on for some time, and particularly uh, Ahab is his son. Uh, goes reigns for some time and is a is an important figure in the book of Kings. Uh, but the, origin, the, uh, the originator of the dynasty is Omri. Omri was not uh, just, uh, he's prominent in, he's important as a, the founder of this dynasty in Kings, but perhaps even more uh, important when we look at um, uh, history outside of Israel. He's, uh, he's recognized as a, as a significant ruler uh, even after the Almorite dynasty is over, was overthrown. There are de- documents that refer to the northern kingdom as the land of Omri. Uh, they refer to Jehu as the son of Omri. Jehu's not related to Omri, but uh, he's described in uh, Assyrian documents as the son of Omri. Um, let me begin with verse 15 of chapter 16. I'll just read through this, and then I'll make some points. And um, 
what I want you to think about as I read this, you may have, uh, I've just preached on this recently at Christchurch, so I hope this is not too repetitive uh, for, for you. Uh, but it, if, you, if you haven't heard this before, what I want you to be thinking about is what, what, um, what storyline we're following. What other texts or what other life is, uh, is uh, the Book of Kings alluding to? Uh, what, uh, or to use Doug Jones's phrase, what picture are we supposed to bring in to use as a template, as a, as a screen for understanding the, the reign of Omri? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Tirzah. Now the people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people were camped, who were camped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also struck down the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon, and they besieged Tirzah. And it came about when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he did, making Israel sin. Uh, he spent, in, for a seven-day reign, that's a pretty dramatic condemnation. <laughs> uh, apparently the Lord wanted him to act quickly in removing the idolatries of Jeroboam, and he didn't. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy which he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to him, uh, to him, to make him king. Sorry, the other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the thirty-first year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned twelve years. He reigned six years at Tirzah, and he bought the hill Samaria from Shema for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shema, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of Yahweh and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking Yahweh God of Israel with their idols. Now all the rest of the acts of Omri which he did and his might which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Omri his son became king in his place. Uh, there is a re Verse 27 gives us a reference to some of the achievements of Omri that, that the text doesn't record, and it refers us to this... Um, a lost source, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, for an account of those achievements. Uh, now, if you're writing strict political history of the Northern Kingdom, those kinds of things would be important. Uh, but the, those are not the things that the writer of Kings includes for us. He includes only uh, certain select events in the, hit, in the story of Omri, and virtually all of them have some connection with the story of David. Okay? Omri is, uh, is living the life of David. He's a, 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 use the phrase counterfeit David to describe who Omri is because he is an idolater and he's an unfaithful king. But in many of the details of his reign, he is following in the footsteps of David. Uh, he's already before he's king in verses 15 and 16. He's commander of the army. Uh, so he's a, he's a military guy and he's fighting Philistines. That may not seem very significant because we know the Philistines have been a problem before in Israel's history, but in Kings, they're not a problem. There's very little reference to the Philistines in the book of Kings because David basically took care of the Philistines. And in, in Kings, they only come up here. Uh, there's a passing reference to them somewhere else in First Kings that I can't remember. And then in the reign of Hezekiah, he also is said to fight against Philistines. Philistines are not very, are not very prominent in Kings. And when they do come up, there is some Davidic illusion normally. That's the, that's the case with Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah is fighting Philistines, and that's part of a whole series of things that are comparing Hezekiah to David. He's, uh, he's explicitly compared to David in 2 Kings 18. So we have a commander of the army who's fighting Philistines. His king, uh, Zimri, uh, Omri hears that Zimri is king, and so he marches up on Tirzah, where Zimri is, uh, has holed himself up, the capital city at that time for uh, the northern kingdom. Now this is... Uh, uh, and, uh, this is an anti-Davidic kind of move. Uh, when David was a, an, a soldier under the, under the uh, leadership of Saul, uh, David had opportunity, as you know, in Samuel to uh, overthrow, overthrow Saul. He doesn't do it. He resists the temptation to do that. Uh, but Omri, again, a counterfeit David, when he finds that his uh, commander is vulnerable, he takes action and he, he, seeks, he wants to seize the kingdom. Uh, verse 18 is difficult in Hebrew. Uh, but I, I think it uh, tells us that Zimri uh, basically committed suicide. He, he uh, went into the citadel, the king's house, and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Uh, the the uh, subject of he went into the synagogue is Zimri, and uh, there's no additional 
there's no other subject to go with he burned the house over him with fire. Uh, you could kind of import Omri, Omri burned the house over him with fire, but I think the, gramma, the grammar uh, pre preferably points to Zimri as the one who despairs and uh, uh, puts himself in the king's house. He sees Omri coming with all these troops and he knows he can't resist, and so he burns, his, burns the house over him. Well, uh, suicidal kings are not, they're common in Shakespeare, perhaps, uh, but their suicidal kings are not common in the Bible. They're not all that common in Shakespeare. Uh, suicidal conspirators are more common. Um, uh, but he, uh, the, one, the one suicidal king that we know of up to this point in the Bible is Saul. And here we have somebody, a, a commander who's fighting Philistines and his, uh, his king uh, commits suicide and then Omri takes over. It's again a Davidic kind of storyline. Um, then beginning in verse 21, this becomes really obvious, I think. Uh, the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. The people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginath. Tibni died and Omri became king. We know that from Second uh, Samuel, uh, uh, the early chapters of Second Samuel, that that was the situation after Saul's death. After Saul's suicidal death, there was a division in the people of Israel one uh, one group followed David, the other group followed Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and there was a civil war. Uh, the language here is similar to the language of Second Samuel three. David's the people followed David became stronger and stronger. They prevailed over. Uh, they became stronger uh, than the uh, people who followed Ishbosheth. The people who follow Omri do the same thing with respect to Tibni. So you have a civil war. Omri turns out on top, and then once Omri becomes king, he divides his reign between two capitals. He starts out in Tirzah, and then after six years, he moves to Samaria, buying the, the hill, as David bought the temple site in Jerusalem at the end of 2 Samuel. Um, David conquered Jerusalem and moved his capital there, but uh, uh, he, did, he did buy a portion of it from Aron of the Jebusite, or Ornan the Jebusite. Um, so you have this divided reign between two capitals, which is true of, uh, true of David as well. Okay. Now, all of that, none of that is, uh, uh, the writer of Kings doesn't point to any of that. He doesn't say, look, it's a, he doesn't compare him to David explicitly. He could have. He said Omri is, was like David in these respects. Um, I'm definitely reading something into the text. I'm bringing something from outside the text and reading this text through the lenses provided by the story of David. But once you see uh, five or six significant connections, and once you also recognize that this is all that the writer of Kings tells us about Omri. This is all that we have in Kings. Uh, and virtually every detail has some parallel in David's life. Then you begin to suspect that we're supposed to do that. Okay? How did I know that was going on? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I had been working on Samuel. I had the life of David in my mind. I came to this passage and go, whoa, that looks a lot like David's life. It was probably the division of the, the, division of the uh, reign into two locations that made me first think of it. Uh, but some, some clues struck out, stuck out at me and I started looking for other parallels and then you find that there are a whole host of parallels in this passage. Uh, but I, I would argue that the writer of Kings wants us to do that. Uh, and if he didn't want us to do that, this is not the way he would have written the passage. Uh, he writes the passage including only those details uh, or most of the details are details that have some parallel with the life of David. Now what that means, if you, if you press this, then what that means is that Ahab is a counterfeit Solomon, which works uh, works pretty nicely. Uh, Ahab has a uh, as an alliance with uh, uh, us with Sidon. Uh, Solomon had an alliance with Tyre. Tyre and Sidon are twin cities. With Solomon, the alliance is a positive one. You got Gentiles working on the house of God. With Ahab, it's a, a, a marriage alliance that is promoting idolatry. You got uh, Ahab marries a foreign woman who promotes idolatry in the land. Ahab spends a lot of his time building stuff. Uh, as First uh, uh, Kings uh, sixteen twenty nine to thirty four points out, uh, he builds a temple. In fact, uh, verse thirty two, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab's a temple builder; uh, he's a counterfeit Solomon. So you have, at the beginning of the Amri dynasty, you have a sequence, a Davidic kind of founder, and then a Solomonic kind of successor, which suggests that the whole Amri dynasty has should be seen as a uh, as a kind of counterfeit Davidic dynasty. A um, couple ways I could go here now. Let me think about the best way to do this. Let me do this. When you turn over to Second Kings, and I won't go into much, as much detail with this, Second uh, uh, Kings 9 and 10, 
uh, are the end describe the end of the dynasty of Omri, the end of the house of Ahab. But it marks it's described as being an attack on the house of Ahab. He's the most prominent member of the Amorite dynasty, so this is bringing the Amorite dynasty to an end. So they, at the center of Kings, you have uh, uh, the story of the Amorite dynasty focusing pro- largely on the prophets who confronted uh, Amri's, uh, Amri's uh, successors, uh, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, but uh, Elijah and Elisha are ministering during this in, in this context, in the context of this counterfeit Davidic dynasty. Uh, so you have a, uh, you begin the story of the Amorite dynasty in 1 Kings 16, you end with 2 Kings 9 and 10, that's a big, big chunk right at the middle of Kings, uh, that is uh, is all about the Amri dynasty. Well, when we look at uh, look at the uh, uh, work of Jehu, uh, we find that there are a number of uh, parallels with the. Uh, we have the. Uh, let me put it this way: the beginning of the Amri dynasty you have parallels with David and Solomon. The end of the Amri dynasty is a foreshadowing of the end of the Davidic dynasty that comes at the end of Book of Kings. Uh, that's true in some general ways. Uh, Jehu uh, kills the members of the house of Ahab, uh, and that includes members of the house of Judah, uh, because they've intermarried with the house of Ahab in uh, in the north. Uh, then, uh, uh, in famously, uh, Jehu entices all the worshippers of Baal into the house of Baal, and slaughters them all, and destroys the house. So you've got a slaughter of a royal family. You've got the killing of members of royal family on a pretty large scale. The house of Ahab is swept clean, uh, and then uh, you have a uh, a destruction of a temple, the Baal temple in Samaria, which is um, in, recorded in Second Kings 10. And then, following that, in Second Kings 11, following Jehu's clearing, ha- uh, clearing of the house of Ahab, you have an interruption of the Davidic dynasty. Okay, so these those three things happen. Three things happen at the end of the Amorite dynasty: uh, a slaughter of a royal house the destruction of a temple and an interruption of the Davidic dynasty. Now those are the very same things that happen at the end of the book of Kings, at the end of the real Davidic dynasty. You have members of the house of David that are killed, some taken into exile, but some are killed. You have a temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and you have an interruption of the Davidic dynasty. Okay? Uh, the end of the Davidic, uh, the end of the Amri dynasty, which is a counterfeit Davidic dynasty, is a foreshadowing of the end of the Davidic dynasty at the end of Kings. One detail, uh, this is, I, I do remember this, this is what got me started on this particular point, uh, noted, noting the parallel between 2 Kings 9.27 and 2 Kings 25.4. This is a description of the uh, uh, Ahaziah king of Judah, who is uh, married into the house of, uh, married into the house, the Ju- house of Judah, house of David has married into the house of Omri. So you have this overlap of the two royal houses. And so when Jehu comes slaughtering members of the house of Ahab, he slaughters members of the house of Judah as well. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, happens to be visiting, uh, bad timing here, he happens to be visiting uh, the northern kingdom when Jehu goes on his rampage. Ahaziah, verse 27 says, When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. So, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Ibliam. He fled to Megiddo and died there somebody dying in Megiddo. Then his uh, servants carried him in a chariot and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. Uh, so you've got a king of Judah who is being pursued by a <coughs> by a destroyer uh, and he goes past the garden house. When you can turn over to 2 Kings 25.4 read the first four verses of that chapter. This is the very last chapter of Kings. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month the Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it and built a siege wall against it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night, <coughs> by the way of the gate between the two walls, beside the king's garden, through the Chaldeans, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went out by the Arabah. I'll keep reading a little bit. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his armies scattered from him. They captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah and passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Okay. He doesn't get killed, but he does go into exile. Okay. Is that the same scene or what? I mean, uh, it's the, the obvious parallel is this reference to the king's garden. Uh, uh, the garden house in Second Kings uh, 9.27 the king's garden in 2 Kings 25, 4. It's not the same place, 
But in both cases, you've got a fleeing king of Judah who's being pursued by people who are attacking and overthrowing a dynasty. That's what Jehu's doing. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. In both cases, they run by. uh, They're fleeing through a garden. Uh, There's a reference to a garden, an Edenic reference, no doubt, of some sort. And then uh, they're captured, in one case uh, killed, and in another case blinded and taken into exile. Okay, so it's, it's the the garden house is the clue, I think. But the, once you have that clue, then you can look at the other parallels, and the situations are very similar to each other. So, the, and the point is that the beginning of the Amrite dynasty parallels the beginning of the Davidic dynasty, a Davidic-like king followed by a Solomonic-like king. The end of the Amrite dynasty foreshadows the end of the Davidic dynasty. So, the whole, in, at least in its structure, the whole history of the Amrite dynasty is a history of a is foreshadowing and showing. Uh, a, an extreme form, a counterfeit form of the Davidic dynasty. Okay, um, so um, now one uh, one other thing to throw in here, uh, and that this will uh, complicate things, but it, I think it's I think it's helpful to see to see this. So the, let me put it this way: the big story of kings is the story of the Davidic dynasty. That's what you have at the beginning with Solomon. The end you, after after, uh, after uh, the end of the Northern Kingdom, uh, you have Josiah reunite the kingdoms and what falls at the end of kings is a reunited kingdom okay uh, not in the it doesn't have the extent uh, the boundaries that Solomon's kingdom did but Josiah doesn't just clean house in Judah he goes up and he destroys the temple at Bethel okay the the shrine at Bethel and he goes through all the cities of Israel we're told uh, cleaning house and destroying there's a new conquest of the land he's a new Joshua uh, and he's uh, conquering the whole land Again, not to Solomonic proportions, but the, it's that united kingdom that falls at the end of kings. So the beginning and end of kings is about the united kingdom under a Davidic king. At the center of kings, you have the story of the counterfeit Davidic dynasty. That's the, that's the central narrative. Between these two, you have a, lar- a lot of attention given to the northern kingdom, which is founded by Jeroboam. And wouldn't you know that Jeroboam's life is also paralleled after the life of David in a number of respects. Okay. Uh, 1 Kings 11 there's several overlapping things here with uh, Jeroboam, but let me read through this. This is rather long, but uh, I w- uh, I'll stop a, a few times just to point out things. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat and Ephraim of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeroiah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now, the man Jeroboam was a, va- a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Okay. Somebody, uh, some, he's serving in the in the civil service of civil service of Solomon, um, and he's also um, uh, he's a he's a close ally and servant to the king. Uh, there's a, a couple of a couple of allusions there. Uh, we could uh, make uh, connections with uh, with Joseph, perhaps. There's a reference to the house of Joseph in the verse, but uh, a Davidic kind of position. It came about when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road, and Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. So Jeroboam is serving Solomon, he's serving the king, and he's confronted by a prophet, and that prophet is going to tell him that he's going to be the next king. He's going to give him charge over a certain number of tribes. Okay. Ahijah took the new cloak which is on him and tore it into twelve pieces, and said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give it to you ten tribes, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as my father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the, make the kingdom from his take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you even ten tribes but to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name and I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel listen to this verse then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Okay. There's a, a Davidic, uh, there's a promise that's like the promise of David, which is explicitly compared to the promise of David in 2 Samuel 7. Now, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says, I will build a house for you. You're not going to build a house for me, I'll build a house for you. And now he says, I'll build a house for Jeroboam, if he is faithful. 
Then look at verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. Okay. A prophet meets Jeroboam. Jeroboam is told that he's going to be king over a certain number of tribes. And the king now is trying to put down this rival. This sounds familiar, right? Okay. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Okay. That doesn't sound like David, perhaps, but it, it's, it is David. Uh, David flees to the land of the Philistines, uh, who, according to uh, Genesis 10, are uh, a, related, a related nation to the Egyptians. Um, those, whenever, you, whenever you have a Philistine exile you're, or a Philistine oppression, you're back in Egypt. Um, and Jer- Jeroboam goes to actual Egypt, uh, parallel to David going into, uh, the, uh, uh, into uh, uh, Philistine, Philistia. And then after the death of Saul, David came out and became king. After the death of Solomon, Jeroboam comes out of Egypt and becomes king. Now, overlapping this, there are references to Jeroboam as a new Israel. He's, he, goes into, he goes into exile in Israel. He comes back. He, he stands like a Moses before Rehoboam. He says, let my people go. <laughs> They're bearing heavy burdens. Uh, and then he uh, leads, uh, leads an exodus out of the house of David. Uh, and he sets up uh, a new system of worship at Bethel and Dan. Uh, he's, he's following the story of, of Israel and Moses in certain respects. These are overlapping perspectives on Jeroboam. Uh, but I think uh, there's, a, there's, some, there's some clear parallels to Bar- uh, Jeroboam and David. Okay? Uh, and the, so the, uh, the Amorite dynasty is not the first counterfeit Davidic dynasty that you have in kings. You have a counterfeit Davidic dynasty in the northern kingdom, too. And the northern kingdom, so the northern kingdom begins with this Davidic-like character. The northern kingdom ends uh, with Assyria coming and wiping out the royal house. Uh, and you don't have an interruption of the Davidic dynasty, but you have a threat to the Davidic dynasty that immediately follows that. Uh, just as you have with the Amri dynasty, uh, the Davidic dynasty comes to an end for seven years. At the end of the kings, when the Davidic dynasty is destroyed, uh, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, you have an interruption of the Davidic dynasty. After the northern kingdom falls, the Assyrians march down to Jerusalem and threaten the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord uh, graciously delivers Jerusalem under Hezekiah. But you have that threat to the Davidic dynasty and then a revival of the Davidic dynasty that follows. Uh, the, uh, the final end, in the sense, of the northern kingdom as a, as a liturgically comes with Josiah, who, as I mentioned already, destroys the, uh, the major shrine at Bethel. Is, uh, and uh, there's a, uh, I think we, I know I think, I won't attribute this to any of you, but I think, uh, when I think of Jeroboam setting up golden calves, I tend to think of, empty space all around him and a golden calf and everybody's worshiping there. But of course there would have been a temple there. There would have been a shrine. There would have been all kinds of stuff that would build up at Bethel. It would have been a center of worship and that's what Josiah destroys. The Amorite dynasty ends with the destruction of the temple of Baal. The northern kingdom ends with the destruction of the temple at Bethel. The Davidic, uh, the, the southern kingdom ends with the uh, uh, you know where I'm going. <laughs> I can't get it out. Uh, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. There I go. Okay, now, uh, so that's, that's how I see the structure of kings. And all of it, it's all depending on these internal typologies that go back to Samuel uh, and are working within kings as well. But you have the big story of the Davidic kingdom. And within that, you have the story of the, the, the northern kingdom, which is parallel both at the beginning and end to the story of the Davidic kingdom. And then the story of the Amri dynasty is parallel to both of those at its, as its begin, at its beginning and end. Now, one of the things that emerges from this, and this is the point I wanted to to get to, the, what, one of the things that emerges from this uh, is the way that God is dealing with the Davidic dynasty in all of these cases. If you go to the central, central narrative of kings, the Davidic dynasty is, is interrupted for seven years. Athaliah, who is uh, in no way related to David, is on the throne in Jerusalem. Okay? She is a member of the house of Omri. Uh, Omri and Ahab have basically been able to take over the whole kingdom now. Well, not in the north anymore because Jehu's up there. But they were attempting to take over the whole kingdom united under an Omri dynasty. They've succeeded at least in the south. Now a, a, an Omri queen is on the throne in the south. And she tries to make sure that there aren't any Davidic princes left. Okay? You have Jehu taking care of a whole bunch of Davidic princes and then she takes care of all the rest. The Davidic dynasty is basically done. She's, uh, 2 Kings 11 starts out saying, Athaliah rose up and destroyed all the royal seed. Okay. David's dynasty is over. David's dynasty is dead. But then nurtured in the temple for seven years, gestating in the temple for seven years, Jehoiachin, uh, not Jehoiachin, Jehoiada has Joash who's going to rise up. Davidic dynasty is going to be raised from the dead and the Davidic dynasty is going to be restored. 
You have the same thing happen at the end of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom ends. Assyria destroys Samaria, and Assyria marches down and surrounds uh, Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers, at least, because that's how many are killed. There's more than that. You know, there's a huge army besieging Jerusalem, and they are threatening. There's a real threat to the, to the Davidic dynasty and to the uh, to the future of the Davidic dynasty. But God intervenes and uh, saves Hezekiah, and then uh, Hezekiah leads a great revival in the southern kingdom. Then Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem and destroys the city of Jerusalem. But the last scene in Kings is not the scene of the destruction of the city. The last scene is Jehoiachin in exile, uh, who is being raised up out of the prison, being given new clothes, is given a new diet, uh, placed at the table of the king. A regular portion was given to him by the king every day, all the days of his life, and he is raised up above all the other kings that are in uh, prison in Babylon. That's uh, 2 Kings 25-28. Uh, evil Merodach spoke kindly to him and said uh, his throne above the throne of the kings which were with him in Babylon. So the story, when you, look at the, uh, when you look at the structure of kings with these internal typologies, these Davidic typologies going on, what you see is the story is not just the story of unremitting disaster. There's, that's, that's the surface story. But the underlying story is the story of God's faithfulness to, to David. This is about the the story of the story of kings is about the death and resurrection of the Christ, of the Davidic king of the Davidic dynasty. It's dead at the time of Athaliah, God raises it up. It's threatened with death at the time of Hezekiah, God raises it up. It is destroyed and interrupted until Jesus comes by Nebuchadnezzar. But then there's this sign of future restoration, with Jehoiachin being raised up. So uh, it, that goes back to the point I made at the, uh, when I first started this that the. Even, even if we don't have any individuals in kings, and I think we do have individuals in kings who are types of Christ, but even if we didn't, the whole storyline is the story of Jesus. This is the kind of thing I think uh, that uh, Jesus is referring to when he, when he, when he says that uh, the, uh, he begins with Moses and all the prophets and teaches them everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. And the, the thrust of that, the thrust of Jesus' teaching is that was it not necessary that Christ would have to suffer and then would be raised from the dead. That's what Kings is about. The suffering and resurrection of the Davidic dynasty. The suffering and resurrection of David. Let's end with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your great faithfulness to your son David, uh, to David's son, Jesus Christ, and to your promises to David. We thank you that you have raised the Davidic king and the Davidic dynasty from the dead, and that we are, have become members of the Davidic family, uh, enthroned as kings. Uh, with Jesus Christ, your Son. Uh, we pray that as we uh, look at the book of Kings, we'd be stirred not only to fear at your judgments, but also uh, great encouragement and great comfort, uh, knowing that uh, you are a God who uh, overcomes death and uh, you're a God of uh, life uh, and a God of resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled type and anti-type. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.